Warning, on this podcast, we discuss sensitive issues, including but not limited to swearing, tasteless jokes, mentions of drug use, and situations of a sexual nature. This podcast is not intended for children. Welcome to Bibliorex, where we read the worst stories the world has to offer. I'm Bam Bam. And I'm Bugs. Bugs, what wrecked you this week? Oh my gosh, this wrecked my month. No More Heroes is a shared world anthology edited by Wayne Goodchild and Bill Tucker. Ew, they had to have two editors. Two editors. To slog through it. Do you know what a shared world anthology is? No. What? What is that? Okay, so I didn't know what this was either. I had to look it up and Google multiple different searches to even find what the thing was that I was looking at. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if you've ever read them, but there are shared world anthologies of like Doctor Who. And it's basically fan fiction set in the world of Doctor Who. And they will publish these short stories. And the limitations are the ones in the show. You have to have like the doctors and they can't do wildly out of character things. You have the characters from the TV shows. And then they write many episodes of the show and publish it in an anthology. Mm-hmm. This is a thing. It's published. It's a popular but very tiny niche. It kind of reminds me of what they do with Star Wars. Yes. Yes. Because a lot of the novelizations of Star Wars are like taken care of by different authors and stuff like that. And they have to just maintain everything within a certain loose assembly. Right. It's kind of like staying within the canon of the world, but then building your own little stories within it. That's the broad, well-done version. This is the very badly done version. These guys, um, Wayne Goodchild and Bill Tucker, they wrote a epilogue and a prologue explaining the world. And then they sent a PDF that was 17 pages long with a character list and character description of the characters you were allowed to write about to the authors who wrote these short stories. Oh, gosh. So, you know those kits where you're given cookies and gel to decorate them and oh, yay, but it tastes like cardboard? Mm -hmm. That's this. I don't like that. Were there any, like, big-name authors, like anybody of note, or just kind of... I didn't look up any of the authors specifically. It looked like I did find their, um, oh, what was it called? It was like a blog um, chat room. Hmm. These people had already been in a chat room format talking with the author and like, I guess, doing this own little tiny fan fiction group. And that's how they gathered these authors. These were basically, I'm on Blogger and I'm funny. haha. Oh, yeah, you can write our short story story and we'll put it in this book. Guess what the people earned for writing these short stories? Publicity? One cent per word and a copy of the book. Oh, No publicity. You cannot find this book on Google. I tried. I tried. One cent per word and I think they handed over the copyright to the editors. I think they retained the rights. I don't know for sure because I didn't read all of like the fine print and stuff. What what would you say the stories are average? Like five to eight thousand words? There was a few in there that were ten to twelve pages long. So I don't know a word count. But there were some that were only three or four pages and you could tell they were packing in as many extra words as I could. (laughs) And I was like, why are you saying lamented sadly? You could just say lament. (laughs) Why? Because you're saying I sat it sadly. (laughs) 
<laughs> and then I was thinking, I finally found out the one cent thing. I was like, oh, there's that extra yeah. penny. Oh, and if you do that five or six times over and over in different ways, there's an extra 10 cents. Oh, gosh. This sounds horrific. Yeah. So how about we get into it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, please do. I'm ready. So we start out page one prologue. We meet Dr. Muertos, who is the supervillain. And then he is defeated by the Guardian. He's like the superest super and no one can defeat him. It sounds very generic. Very generic angel, humanoid. Superman stand in. Pretty much. <laughs> yeah. He gets defeated and then Muerto shows up and he's the supervillain in 2008. So two. 2008 is when this is all set. Oh, no. Yes. <laughs> Everything is set in 2008, 2009, 2010. So Muerto goes to the outback of Australia and has a showdown with all the heroes of the world. He wants to take control of the world. He wants to own it. Any particular reason for Australia? So that they could blow it up, annihilate it, and only 20 million people die. Hmm. That's purposeful. Yeah. I... I... <sighs> Because it, it is a plot point over and over. The Outback of Australia. It's in several of the short stories. I guess that's just the setting that the editors decided this is where it happened. So 2009, November 20th, 2009, I think, there's this showdown. Every hero on the globe with superpowers is in the Outback. They face Muerto, and Muerto blasts this dark energy that makes everything age super fast. And so it's like this magic atomic bomb wipes out the entire continent so that there is no vegetation, no plants, hardly breathable air. It's ground zero. Does it like uh, like ruin all three of the, like the main cities of Australia? All 20 million people are dead. So the whole continent is foobar. Entire continent. Yep. Okay. Every human, every animal, every plant is destroyed utterly. So weird you picked Australia though. And there's, I couldn't find a good reason why. It wasn't uh, Africa or North America or Russia. Right. I don't know. Because yeah. like the three main cities of Australia are like on the coast, like spread to the three corners of the continent. <laughs> Right. And this was in the center of Australia, in the mm. outback. And there's supposed to be these after images that you see where it's like these red and black ghosts. And Muerto turned into a giant tentacled octopus monster and sucked all of the heroes and villains into his body. And when they destroyed him or he blew up or whatever this thing happened, he is destroyed. Every hero and villain there is destroyed. And it's just the cataclysm. Did he mean to eat them? Was that part of his plan? He like absorbed their energy into him, maybe. But then he also blew up too. Did he eat it too much? Is that? Me? I don't know. It's not explained well. It doesn't matter. And they make a point of the whole book. Nobody really knows what happened in Australia. No one survived that day in the cataclysm. We just don't know what happened. Afterwards, they only see the after effects and guess. And in fact, that is a very frustrating theme in the book. I guess as far as like the writing of the authors, unless they were like heavily constrained and edited on, you kind of have to leave it like so vague like that. They had to leave so much open ended so that the authors could actually have wiggle room to put their stories into. Was it at least like a good hook for a prologue? I kept thinking it was history of superheroes in America thing. 
I didn't realize it was the beginning to the story. <laughs> if it if that had been better explained and we had had the list of characters like a cast list <laughs> and their abilities, all the stories would have made a lot more sense going into them. On their own, almost none of the stories are cohesive or make any sense because <laughs> I tried. Like you and I read um, Rebirth of Farmer. On its own, makes no sense. <laughs> After I've read most of the book, oh, okay, I know what's going on. I can just write this out. I can tell you what's going on. And it took hours and hours of reading to get there. (laughs) So, yeah, I I feel like in the same way a fandom of Doctor Who expects you to know who the 10th Doctor is and who Rose is. (laughs) This is walking in expecting you to know who these characters are. But they don't exist in broader culture, and there's no way to know these backgrounds. So that part was very poorly done. Oh, and quickly, before we go any further, I wanted to give a quick warning to the listeners. This episode contains graphic material. In the book, we will read about suicide, child sexual abuse, murder, and violence. Oh god, I'm already sad. I won't dwell over details, but please take care of yourself and I'll give warnings ahead of time. It gets bad. It it gets shocking. I was there a few times I was shocked I'm and horrified. Upset. Yes. <laughs> okay. In story one, we will deal with the child sexual abuse. Oh boy. You're gonna have to skip it and get to section two if you wanna skip that part. Mm. All right. Goatman torments a town and rapes thirteen teenage girls. Hold on. Already. <laughs> You are not given any background. You're given a very, very brief explanation of what he looks like. There's like a cryptid called Goatman. Um, you know the guy in Narnia, the fawn? Oh, no. This is him. Not Mr. Tumnus. He looks like Mr. Tumnus. He has an English accent. He loves to rape girls. And he goes, Goatman! Oh, God. No! This is story one. You can't. Who is the target audience here? The people who wrote the story I... and understand the world. Uh, just keep, just keep. Um, yeah. So he comes into town saying, bring me all your booze, bring me all your pills, bring me all your drugs, and bring me 13 girls between 14 and 18. I hate, I hate that. And they I are given as tribute to him. And he sits in a hotel, raping them, sending them home dead, sometimes alive. And he basically just tries to just, he just runs rampant on this town. They try to assassinate him. Bullets don't kill him. He doesn't die. He heals super fast. He can jump like 30 feet into the air, can crack your skull with his hooves, and you're dead instantly. He is like the super strongest super boy in goat form, and he's really gross. He sounds like a a Greek mythological villain. Yeah, I was upset at the variety of power levels that these characters have. He is way overpowered. He should, and in fact, okay, so that's the summary of the first part of that story. The second part of the story is the perspective of one guy designs a plan to take Goatman down. He builds Dreadnought, a nine-foot-tall robot frame that he stands inside of. They trick Goatman into going into a mine. Goatman stomps his hooves and creates, like, Oh, like a... A seismic event? Yes. And the guy in the dreadnought was outside of the cave watching, and he shoots rockets and huge-ass bullets at Goatman, who jumps out of the way. And then he pulls up, like, 
a 12-foot cannon off of a World War I British boat or something and shoots a cannonball into the mine, which drops on Goatman and finally knocks him out. What would you do if someone had been raping your girls and destroying your town and you finally got him to where he couldn't escape? Honestly, I'm still stuck on the fact that they turned this into a kaiju fight. Like they Oh yeah, first story kaiju fight. Yep. He's just he's just like a regular sized goat man, right? Yeah, human like, human sized. Like if you took a goat and stamped him on his legs and gave him human muscly arms and hands. And your first thought was giant robot. Mm-hmm giant wooden robot that did i no it's like he was a welder and he uh, has like okay. a piece of some superhero weapon or armor on it but that doesn't do anything it's just okay. like a piece like a foot long i don't know so yeah they have him right where they want him what do they do you try to kill him right right no they cut open his belly insert a bomb into his gut, sew him closed, and send him home as a message to the other superheroes that they are going to fight back now. What? what? They send Goatman home with a bomb in his gut instead of just killing him. So he's going to go back to like the secret hideout? No, all, all, all the villains just take over towns. It just sends a message broadly? Broadly to the other 50 or 80 supervillains in the world. So Goatman just goes along with it and just like w- walks off and blows up in the woods somewhere. They say, oh, we won't detonate it if you go home and leave us alone. So he goes home and cuts it and they just cut open his belly and take the bomb out. He survives and goes on to kill lots of other people. That's really unsatisfying. Extremely. I mean, because this guy has been built up as this nasty, evil dude. I mean, just built up as this terrible, terrible villain. What do you want at the end of that? You want to kill him. Mm-hmm. You want to be satisfied that he can't hurt anyone else. Mm-hmm. And it's it's they try to build this idea of us, the little guys, are fighting back. Mm-hmm. Multiple stories. It's from the perspective of people who aren't superheroes, aren't supervillains, and... Kind of the Incredibles, but from the other side. More like, you know, in the Godzilla movies, and you're always following a civilian, and they're trying to run away that perspective. But if you could get Godzilla and knock him out and kill him and he would stop destroying your entire fucking country, mm-hmm. wouldn't you? No, we're just going to say we're fighting. We. You know who won't write a 17-page PDF and then ignore the reader's need to read it? Me. These ads. <laughs> 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 Hello, Biblio freaks, geeks, and lovers. Bam here with a couple of notes for you. We have a Patreon where we focus on a bad book and bad movie combo. Please leave comments and suggestions on our Facebook or email us at bibliorex at gmail.com. That's B-I-B-L-I-O-W-R-E-C-K-S at gmail.com. We are also at Bibliorex on all our socials. Thanks so much for being here, and I hope you enjoy these bad books as much as we do. So now we kind of get to the details of more about what happened to the cataclysm. Uh-huh. We are told that every single hero in the world was there. So if you are a super anything, you're a villain because you weren't there fighting with the good guys. So is this like delivered organically through dialogue or is this just like... 
I had to pick that up over three or four stories. Uh, I'm giving it to you so you're not as confused okay, as I gotcha. was going in. Gotcha. I just wasn't sure if that was like a fault of the story, just like spilling out all this information. No, and every story is a different author. So uh, some of them give you information and some don't. Their understanding of what the audience will know varies quite widely. Mm-hmm. Story two is when good men do nothing and we are following a person. We don't know their gender for the first five pages. They're walking toward a town, but every other sentence is a flashback to a conversation with him. That sounds very jarring. It was. And I couldn't tell who was who for a long time. Hmm. Even rereading it, knowing the whole book, I still don't know what some of it meant. How many pages of notes did you have to take? I took 31 pages of notes. Oh, God. (laughs) You took more notes than one of the stories. Yeah. I've been taking a couple hours of notes every day for over a week. Because some of the good stories are so quick and easy to, like, summarize. Mm -hmm. Like, that first story, functionally, it was a fine fine story. It was in a faulty world and in a bad, bad system, Mm -hmm. I guess. But as a story on its own, it was fine. It was like, it kept the same perspective. You followed the same people. You knew what was happening and everyone had names. Mm -hmm. Summarize that in... Two or three paragraphs. Mm. Some of these take pages because it's so convoluted and confusing. The only way to tell you what happened is to go back. Just be like Charlie with the the red strings. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Basically, yeah. So I'm just going to go ahead and explain who is going, who's doing what in most every story. I'm not going to try to make the big reveal second to last sentence like they do because I'm not reading out the whole story to you. Sorry. I appreciate it. (laughs) So J.J. Brownlee is a girl. And we find out in one sentence, she's basically a small white girl who has red hair. And that's all we find out about her. She is walking to some place from some place, flashing back to conversations with him. And she's like, I don't want to do nothing. I don't want to go out there. Why do we have to? And the entire conversation is him saying, because when good men do nothing, the world collapses because we must do the right thing because we are good people. And she's like, no, I just want to go home. And she comes across as very childish and very weak and small, Uh but we don't meet him. Like we don't actually get a description of him or an explanation of their relationship. So going into it, it sounds like like her and her dad. So she hears church bells, sees a burning cop car with a corpse in it, and you can still see his face in a rictus of horror, and you can smell the gasoline burning. But the cataclysm was months ago, but there's rioting then and now. But there's also current destruction, mm-hmm. but also she's been traveling for who knows how long. So where this story is set in time, no clue. That's very odd, but... I I guess you got to keep your reader hooked with a a dead body that's upsetting. And then her feeling guilt over, oh, God, if I don't do something, more cop cars and cops will get blown up. So she hears church bells. And so she starts walking toward them. And she sees a beautiful, perfect town that is pristine. And then she walks in and sees a grocery store that is destroyed. She sees vending machines that are torn open and blown up. She sees people dying in the street. She sees houses burning down. So what part of... 
Yeah, what part of that is pristine? Like, she tries to, they try to do this thing of you're going in and it's picture perfect on the outside and a rotting corpse on the inside, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't give you, it doesn't make a transition between outer city to inner city (laughs) or anything. It's just, oh, I thought it looked nice. Oh, on second glance, wow, all these people are dying. Mm -hmm. All these stores are blown up. They must not have water. They must not have food. Mm -hmm. It's like, that wouldn't look good. Yeah. And if you had a cop car right here and then you walk a mile to this town, mm-hmm. how would it be pristine a mile away from blown up cop cars? So she hears the church bells. She walks toward it. All of the people in the town are walking like zombies toward the noise, walking along, not paying any attention to her. An old man bumps into a mobster. And so she notices the mobsters. There's these 14 men who are well-fed and have guns. Like Italiano mobster? They're not described more than guys who obviously have had food. They have guns and they're not hurting for money. Everyone else in the town is like gaunt and dying and thin and pale. The only way I could figure out like, because they're not hoodlums, they're organized. They're not exactly, what do you call, henchmen. Mm -hmm. They're not exactly henchmen, but they kind of are. Mm -hmm. But you don't find out they're henchmen at the beginning. Right. So one of these, this old man bumps into one of these henchmen slash mobsters. And then he, like, falls over in the street. The mobster turns around and shoots the guy in the head. So JJ stops and is frozen and is like, oh, should I help him? Oh, should I do something? Oh, what can I do? I'm so small and little. Honestly, I'd love her to do anything in the story. She, nope, not not doing anything. And then she's just like terrified, like, shouldn't I have given him some of the food and water in my pack? What if they attack me? And then, oh, I'm so guilty. I feel so bad. Mm-hmm. I've let them just kill him. Maybe I could have stopped them. I could have done something. And that's like, what are you doing? Where are you going? Why are you here? So she walks past the corpse and thinks, ah, they're so hungry. They'll probably come back to eat him later. Is she, is she alone at this point? <laughs> Theoretically, yeah. In all of these descriptions, she's alone. Here's a quote of her. I wanted to do something, anything, but I couldn't do anything. I could only stand there and watch helplessly. There were so many of them carrying guns and likely to shoot me just as quickly as the old man. She remembers her conversation with him. Can't we just hide? After what happened in Australia, I think they might have already won. All that is necessary for evil to triumph, he said powerfully, is for good men to do nothing. He, he's like a, he's like a doll. You pull the string and he says a catchphrase. Yes, and it's like platitudes. Pull a string, get a platitude. <laughs> he isn't described until the last page of the story. So the reverend is doing a tent revival in the church. Oh, I didn't notice. I, I didn't mark that down. He is a black guy. Oh, wow. The reverend is a black guy. He's a super villain from South Africa. Oh. <laughs> He's blind, okay. but his non-sight sight looks into people's souls and knows what they do and can manipulate them. I don't... This feels... Gross? It feels super racist. Yeah. Like, is he just... Is is he a witch doctor? I feel like he's a witch doctor. Basically. But he found that he could whip up middle-class evangelicals in the Midwest, and they were a prime target. They make a point of saying he came to the Midwest to target evangelicals. So it's like a reverse missionary, and he's evil. <laughs> There might be a valid criticism in there somewhere. 
No, he's just a <sighs> flat, one-dimensional bad guy. Yeah. He is never given any interesting arc in the book at all. <laughs> this is the only time you really meet him and see him do anything. Slightly off-topic question. Is this the only black person to show up in the book? I took notes on that. Uh, I, I see. I, I, let's see. Dark Fairy and Mervyn are the only other two explicitly dark-skinned characters, and they are both villains. Uh, okay. I was afraid of that. <laughs> yes. Which, the one story is from Mervyn's perspective, so mm -hmm. he is the protagonist, but that... he is a villain. <laughs> he I, ha I uses his powers to fight the heroes. <laughs> uh... And Dark Fairy is a nonsense-speaking Coke bottle-sized fairy. It's very weird. I feel gross. And because these characters were created by the editors, it was all meant to be this way. These weren't the individual authors saying, I'm going to be as racist as I can. This was the editors building this world uh -huh. where the only black characters are villains. And that part really made me not too happy. Yep. I was afraid that's where that was going. <laughs> Yep. So JJ has been following these church bells. She gets to the church and the reverend notices her because he's blind and he can sense souls. He's like, are you here to join the congregation? And she decides she's going to stand up to him and tell him off. No, I'm not here. I'm here to tell you we're we're fighting back. Us. We we're, we're fighting back. I'm going to stand up to you. She announces that heroes still exist. So at the cataclysm, not every hero died. Big reveal. Her friend Bahal blasts through the church walls and grabs the reverend. Is he a Jojo stand? What's a Jojo stand? Never mind. <laughs> He's a golem. Oh. slash sentient rock creature slash like the rock from fantastic four the thing or the thing yeah. sorry <laughs> sorry i'm just imagining dwayne johnson with that texture skin now but, oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh. and it's b uh apostrophe h-a-l-l so I'm just saying Bahal the whole time yeah, that's, because that's I don't know how else I would pronounce that. JJ has magnetic powers with which she uses to shove Bahal and the Reverend far away. So so she's standing in front of the Reverend. All these little henchmen are around. <laughs> Heroes still exist. Bam! Bahal blasts through the wall of the church, grabs the Reverend. She uses her magic magnetic powers to grab Bahal and throw him and the reverend far away. And with her magnetic powers, she senses the guns turn toward her. So she's Magneto? Yeah. Uh. And she says, my name is J.J. Brownlee and I'm not hiding anymore. The end. Then they just shoot her to death. <laughs> that is the assumption. <laughs> I assume they just shot her to death, but you don't know. <laughs> Here's the other thing. Only in this part was, we figured out Bahal has metal in his rocky body, and I can I can control it with my magnet powers. <laughs> I went and looked at that PDF. She can fly. She can use her magnet power to fly. And they never brought that up? Nope. She was That's... walking for hours and miles. Where was Bahal the whole time? He wasn't with her. She never described him as being with her. He wasn't going around to the back of the church when she went in the front. Just suddenly, boom, there he is. So did she like just pull Bahal into the church? No, he came running through. Blast. It was out of nowhere. Out of nowhere. We didn't even know his name until right. that moment. That's and that's so who weird. the him was she was talking. And I had to go back and reread it to figure out that was him. That's very unsatisfying. Yeah, unsatisfying. 
confusing because we go from goat man terrorizing a town to a girl who's actually a woman who actually has superpowers but is pretending to be a civilian who can't do anything. Mm. And then, oh, she does have powers. And I was just like, I don't know who this is. I don't know who Bahal is. And then I have to look at the PDF that was sent to the authors to find out she has powers and her, like, description and stuff. And apparently she was in a relationship with Bahal. They were a couple. What? (laughs) That's revealed on page 338. That's so weird. Like, especially, like, the dynamic that's shown between them. It's it, f- it very much feels like a paternal relationship. Like, he's telling her things, and she's just kind of supposed to blindly accept them, like a child to a parent, but it's her boyfriend. And, like, she's even trying to say, like, couldn't you hear them? You Weren't you here listening? What happened in Australia? And he says, all I heard were the screams. But he wasn't there. But where was he? What was he doing? We never find out the Mm. whole book. He is never given more like character development or background. And I didn't read his thing in the PDF. Mm. Only read a few. You know what else will throw a metal man at you and fling you off into the distance? What's that, Bam Bam? Our ads and sponsors. Oh, boy. Hello, Biblio freaks, geeks, and lovers. Bam here with a couple of notes for you. We have a Patreon where we focus on a bad book and bad movie combo. Please leave comments and suggestions on our Facebook or email us at bibliorex at gmail.com. That's B-I-B-L-I-O-W-R-E-C-K-S at gmail.com. We are also at Bibliorex on all our socials. Thanks so much for being here and I hope you enjoy these bad books as much as we do. And welcome back from ads about store brand tortilla chips. Tortilla chips. They're Spanish licious. <laughs> so I guess you enjoyed the tacos we had for dinner. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Let's log through the rest of this. I'm I'm ready again. Good. We're at uh story number three. A uh, quick content warning. <laughs> We will be mentioning suicide in this story, um, bullying, and abuse. Slow Goth and St. North is the name of it. A, a goth. What? What is slow? Yeah. Which makes no sense when you get to his character, mm. but skipping ahead. So, a high school kid named Nicholas, who looks like a vampire, tries to kill himself by drinking a bunch of chemicals. So, wait, he gets powers from drinking household... Household cleaners that are in the garage. That's irresponsible. That's yes. not... You can't... No. No. Children can This isn't, like, rated or anything. This isn't like Spider-Man with a radioactive spider. This is just, yeah. I hated myself, so I went to the, my garage and drank petroleum and 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 paint thinner. <laughs> like like a child could feasibly read this, yeah, and get a bad idea, yeah. This and it gets worse. Okay, so he goes back to school. He loses a ton of weight. He was the fat, chubby kid who got made fun of. Gains superpowers. Becomes a very thin goth kid who is a vampire. <laughs> So there's not really a downside to drinking all of the chemicals in your dad's garage. He becomes, instead of dying, he becomes a transformationalist. Is there like an actual superpower thing that that translates to? 
What it does is it turns him into that girl from X-Men who sucks people's power or energy out of their body by touching them. Oh, so he just he just becomes rogue? Yes. So he's at school. He's in, in high school. This big, beefy football player. Hi, Pucalus. <laughs> yeah. P- Pucalus. Pucalus. His name is that, Nicholas. The guy calls him Pucalus. That's by far the best name in the book so far. <laughs> yes. And it's a mean nickname by a jock. I will be referring to <laughs> Nicholas as Pucalus now. Absolutely fine. Because yep. slow goth is dumb. So, yeah, bully comes up. Pucalus, huh? Smacks mm-hmm. him upside the head. Mm-hmm. And then he reaches out to grab the kid, like, by the arm. And when he grabs Nicholas by the arm, Nicholas starts sucking all the life energy out of this jock. So the jock starts shrinking and turns white and gray and like falling over. And his one of the jock's friends is like, hey, what's he doing to you, Dennis? And he comes over and smacks the connection. So he breaks it before the guy dies. Hmm. So he ends up in a coma for three weeks and then in a wheelchair for the rest of his life. So did Pucalus do this on purpose? <laughs> he claims not to have. <laughs> He's like, I don't know what happened, man. I didn't do it. It's not my fault, man. So he goes home and stays at home. And they can't prove that he actually did anything because nobody knows he actually has superpowers. They think it was a freak accident. And he's, like, denying any responsibility. So he's at home laying in bed over and over. His physique is explained as a very thin, wiry guy with very pale skin and black eyes and black hair. So seemingly he was a normal looking person and now he looks like this and he sucks people's energy. So there you go. That's I mean, his... he definitely sucks. He very much sucks. So he's at home out of school and um, someone who knows about ultra normal powers shows up at his house and wants to ask him questions. When you say ultra normal, it just sounds like more normal than normal. Right. Land beige. (laughs) (laughs) So Simon North is this guy who shows up. He's a multimillionaire who is interested in helping Nicholas understand and control his powers. Think Xavier from Mm X-Men. So he headhunts ultra normals. Nicholas moves into Simon's mansion and does training for two weeks. So they, like, put him in an isolation chamber, and he has to suck energy out of things. They figure out if he can put the energy back, if he can control how much or how little. And it's not very ethical. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like, without even knowing the details of the experiments, they they just took this kid who already assaulted another kid and just teaching him how to assault more effectively. <laughs> Right. But he's not like Rogue where it's unintentional. Uh He can touch people and nothing happens. Oh. So that makes it more malevolent, Mm -hmm. honestly. And we're not given details on the testing anyway. Oh, okay. Like, that's just just him reflecting, oh, yeah, this two weeks was boring of, of being tested on. Skip that. Not important. So Simon North invites him to come to his computer lab. So Nicholas goes down to see him and Simon North is in his Saint North outfit. And he is basically, um, you know how the Knights Templar dressed Mm -hmm. that, but he controls snow. I'm imagining Ollie North in a Templar outfit. (laughs) 
And it seems plausible. <laughs> We're not really given much of a description of what he looks like or he's just this goody two shoes. Uh, we must do the right thing and be the good people. And he mm. tries to headhunt ultra normals and get them to join the protectors. So he reveals himself to Nicholas as St. North. Um, he can fly. He can do whatever. He has these fancy gloves. So... Nicholas is like, sure, I'll join the protectors. I'll be one of you. That sounds great. And they go to shake hands on it. <laughs> guess what happens, guess Bam he, Bam? I, I guess he takes Oliver North's powers. Yes, he sucks his life energy out, sucks his powers out, and he says, I knew all along you were St. North. Ha ha ha. Now I can put bugs into your satellites and destroy you from here. And your friends will have fun trying to clean up this mess. And St. North falls down and pretends to be dead so that Nicholas will not actually kill him. So Nicholas um, runs away, steals his Bugatti or whatever fancy car it is, I don't know, and takes off. <laughs> so without like any setup, he's planned this all along. He's planned this all along. Instead of just decided this in the moment. Right. Yeah, that doesn't feel good. Right. Like without, like even with proper setup, sometimes that still feels pretty cheap. <laughs> yeah. Like the audience could never have figured that out on their own. Yeah, you're not given any hints yeah. or foreshadowing or anything like mm -hmm. that. Yeah. I, I guess it's just supposed to be shocking. Right. I don't, I don't care about Ollie North, really. So, <laughs> sure, yeah. I guess. So Simon is able to hit a panic button before passing out, and he wakes up to find his rescuer, a large blue mouse who chews on cigars and is named Blue Mouse. I perilously ask why. He is an alien from outer space who is psychic, a computer genius, and two foot tall. And a mouse. And a mouse. And he gives me Bugs Bunny vibes. Like, what's up, Doc? I'm nom nom, but it's a cigar. <laughs> and that's when I found out, oh, aliens exist in this world. That's fine. Yeah, sure. Why not? Sure. Yeah. We're but, not. <laughs> no I guess rules. I guess that was another shocker. I guess. I'm so I'm so surprised, I guess. This is the first time we actually find out there are aliens, really? Okay. So Blue Mouse came in and touched St. North and found out everything that happened because he's psychic and he can read pe unconscious people's thoughts. So he went and magically fixed all the computer problems that Slogoth Nicholas had made, um, restore St. North with some potion or drink to make him all better now. So that solves all of those little problems. Does he get his powers back? Yes. Just poof. Has all, right. Everything's back. Everything's better. He's fine. Sure. We sure. skip all. None of that actually mattered. We're just, we're past that. So yeah, he updates St. North and gives us the exposition on Nicholas. <laughs> Apparently, Nicholas is a super genius who manipulates everyone. He had hidden all of his super abilities, so nobody could have known he was this super genius who could plan and execute this amazing con job. Not even the audience. Not even the audience. Was drinking bleach part of that plan? I don't know. Did, it is never explained. Did he have the super super intelligence and then was like, I know exactly what to do. I'm guessing Pops the bleach cap. <laughs> takes the whatever, drinks whatever chemicals and then becomes a super genius, super powered whatever. Who's also skinny and can suck people's energy. It sounds like... A revenge fantasy of a bullied nerd. <laughs> yeah. Is that the end of the story? No. Okay, no, no, okay. it's not. Um, 
So they're like, oh, he got away. We don't know where he is. And Simon is like, I put tracking devices in all of his clothes. So he must have like been suspicious Mm -hmm. or does he do that to all new recruits? Okay. So they know where he is. So St. North finds him in an airplane, taxiing down the runway. He rips the door off of the airplane and confronts Dr. Pustule, the villain that Slogoth has joined. (laughs) Dr. Pustule. Did he meet him in like an online chat room? This like Dr. Pustule is the head of the League of Doom. Do you know that so far in the book? No, you don't not. I'm telling you so you, that you actually No, you uh, don't not. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> if I didn't do it, the commenters would. So Thank you. No, you do not. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Pustule is the head of the League of Doom, mm-hmm. which you have not been told mm-hmm. so far in the book. He's not even mentioned at the beginning with Muertos and Muerto and whatever else. So Pustule is the supervillain. Slogoth decided to join him already ahead of time. And all of this other thing was just a ruse to get into St. North's house and attack the satellites, even though that actually did nothing. It, it, it didn't matter. Dr. Pustule does some villain monologue, then pulls out a pulse sonic drill that is tuned to St. North's DNA. What? Apparently, the DNA sample from St. North was a useful thing for Slogoth to get, but this doesn't ultimately matter anyway. He uses this, and it's like supposed to be like an air gun or something that he shoots at St. North, and it's supposed to interact with his DNA and destroy him, blow him up. But St. North blows a blizzard out of his mouth, and it hits the air cannon thing and blows up the airplane. And the lizard coming out of his mouth blows him out the door. So he's he's safe. Boom. And then the fuselage blows up. So anyone in the airplane would have died too. Boom. Unless you drank the jet fuel. <laughs> became even smarter. <laughs> uh. But then St. North finds the GPS tracking on the underwear at the top of a mountain. So apparently they didn't die anyway. And there was a bomb to detonate within 10 feet of him getting to the the thing. But it was just a warning to just, you know, it was just a joke. You heard it here, kids. Uh, drink the bleach. It's fine. It will turn you into an X-Men. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, it wasn't a bad story. The descriptions were good. Prologue, you know, people talking, everything was, that part was fine. The silly cartoonish vibe in the second half was very jarring mm-hmm. from the suicide attempt and then murder attempt in the first two pages. Because we start out super dark with the suicide, the jock, all that stuff. And then suddenly we're shooting air cannons and blowing up airplanes and and flying because we St. North flies like a snowflake. Mm. He floats. And no consequences to be No seen. consequences of any of this. Yeah, that, that's pretty... Pretty fucked up to evoke suicide in the first couple of words and then have no repercussions for anything. No lesson learned, no social consequences. He just gets everything that he could want because he is a villain at heart. Yeah, I'll I'll buy that. Teenagers are genuinely bad people. (laughs) (laughs) Speak for yourself. (laughs) Do you have any favorite quotes? Um, from that one, none of it was particularly good or particularly bad. It was just kind of a blast story. Like, I think I would give it maybe a C plus or a B. 
if you understand the world, where you're going, where you're coming from, it's fine within the story itself. Yeah. On its own, completely um, incoherent. Incoherent. You don't know who anyone is and what's happening. Within the broader world, it was fine. I mean, compared to some of the other stories, I was able to basically break it down in a page and a half, which was really good <laughs> compared to some of the other ones. You know who won't feed you bleach, actually? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Biblio freaks, geeks, and lovers, for joining us today. Send your Biblio recommendations to bibliorex at gmail.com. We are at Bibliorex on Patreon and all the socials. Thank you for all the bad books and the good laughs. Goodbye.